0: Good morning and welcome. I'm Chief Justice Loretta Rush. Um, This is a rare occasion. Typically we hold oral argument on Thursdays in the State House. It's only a few times each year we hold an argument outside the State Capitol. This is the 46th time that we've held oral arguments on the road since 1994. We go on the road and we bring a case to you and we bring the court to you because we want you to see this process firsthand. We're pleased to have al- almost 400 students, I think, from five different areas of schools. This is going to be the one time during the oral argument you can show school spirit. All right? So I'm going to s- please stand when I announce your school. Um, and you can show a little school spirit too. Attica High School. Come stand. Come on. City Junior Senior High School, yeah. North Putnam High School.
1: It's gonna be a lot.
0: Park Heritage High School. junior-senior high school. All right. The school spirit portion of the oral argument is over. Thank you. Um, To give you a little background on the members of the court, I'm a former law partner in a Lafayette law firm Um, and a former juvenile court judge just right up the road in Tippecanoe County. I'm a graduate of Richmond High School, Purdue University, and Indiana University. I'm going to ask each of my colleagues on the court to introduce themselves, and I'll start with our longest-serving justice, Justice David.
2: Thank you, Chief. Good morning. My name is Steve David. I live in Boone County, grew up in Bartholomew County. I'm a Columbus North High School graduate just a few years ago, uh, graduate of Murray State University, IU School of Law, McKinney, and a veteran of 28 years in the United States Army, so it's an honor to be here.
3: Good morning. I'm Mark Massa. Um, Unlike most of my colleagues, I'm uh, not native-born to Indiana, uh, but I got here as soon as I heard about it. And uh, I went to high school in my native Wisconsin, uh, attended Indiana University and the IU School of Law in Indianapolis, and um, the bulk of my career was spent as a state and federal prosecutor before I um, was named to the bench seven and a half years ago.
4: Good morning. I'm Jeffrey Slaughter. Uh, I'm a native of uh, Lake County in the far northwest corner of of the state. Um, I'm a graduate of Crown Point High School. Uh, I use Maurer School of Law in Bloomington, and I was appointed to the court in 2016 by then-governor Mike Pence.
5: And My name is Chris Goff. I'm the newest member of the court. Uh, My wife Raquel, my youngest daughter Isabel are here today. We recently moved to Hendricks County. Uh, I live in Brownsburg, but uh, for most of my life I I lived in Wabash County. Uh, I graduated from Southwood High School, uh, Ball State University, and IU Maurer. Uh, After law school I practiced law. I was a general practitioner in Huntington County for eight years and then most recently before I was appointed to the Supreme Court by Governor Holcomb in 2017. I served 12 years as the Wabash Superior Court judge. Very happy to be here. Thank you for your hospitality.
0: All right, we're here this morning to hear the argument in the case of Kavanaugh Sports Bar and Eatery, the appellant versus Eric Porterfield, appellee. The counsel for the appellant, um, Kavanaugh Sports Bar and Eatery, will argue first. It's a civil transfer case. Transfer has not been granted, so that will be the first decision of the court. Representing the appellant today, um, Kavanaugh Sports Bar and Eatery, and again, they're called the appellant because they're the party bringing the case. We have um, Cody Chris, Cody, Christopher Cody and Georgiana T- Tetweiler. Welcome. Thank you. For the Apelli, Eric Porterfield, we have um, Leon Sarkazian and Gabrielle Hawkins. Oh, representing Eric Porterfield, we have Leon Sarkazian. Welcome, Mr. Sarkazian. And Gabrielle Hawkins (coughs) uh, representing the Amiki Kurais that is aligned with the Apelli. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming. And I want to thank all the council for making the trip down and coming and presenting this opportunity for the students today. So at this time, um, Mr. Cody, are you ready to proceed?
6: Chief Justice Rush, uh, other justices, may it please the court. My name is Chris Cody, and I am here to represent Kavanaugh's Sports Bar and Eatery, along with my co-counsel, Georgiana Tubweiler. Kavanaugh's uh, respectfully requests this court to accept transfer of this case uh, on the basis uh, that the Indiana Court of Appeals decision is in conflict with this court's decisions of Goodwin versus Yackel Sports Bar and Rogers versus Martin. Uh, Specifically, uh, my client contends that the court of appeals decision in this case utilized a totality of the circumstances test uh, when evaluating the foreseeability element of duty Uh, and that such a test and such a methodology was rejected specifically by the Goodwin case and the Rogers versus Martin case.
2: Did they rely on totality or were they uh, commenting that in addition to our look at foreseeability or lack thereof as a matter of law uh, here there was also evidence of this. I mean I, I, I can read that two different ways and there seems to be just a limited reference to uh, facts of previous police runs. Can you, can you comment on that?
6: Uh, yes, thank you, Your Honor. Uh, I saw two references uh, in the court of appeals opinion in this case. Um, the first reference specifically states that Kavanaugh's history of reported incidents gave it reason to contemplate further such incidents in its own parking lot. Uh, Following up on that, there's a second commentary by the Court of Appeals in which it states, we do not believe that the Goodwin Court intended so broad a sweep of the pendulum, especially where the bar has a documented history of similar incidents on its grounds. When uh, I look at those two uh, references from the Court of Appeals opinion, They are immediately following uh, the conclusion that the incident was foreseeable, but it appears that in both of those statements that the court is relying upon those prior incidents in making its decisions. Uh, The reason that is important in this case and for this court to consider for accepting transfer is because in both the Rogers decision uh, and the Goodwin decision, the court had gone to uh, specific and stated lengths to clarify Uh, what had been a split in the Court of Appeals opinions on how to evaluate foreseeability for the purposes of duty, uh, as well as to clarify it for trial courts uh, and practitioners moving forward. In this specific opinion, those two references clearly reference, uh, or those two statements, pardon me, clearly (coughs) reference what appear to be a totality of the circumstances test. And the totality of the circumstances test, in terms of looking at and relying on past incidents, on the premises, which is what would encompass the totality of the circumstances test, at least as defined by both the Goodwin case and the Delta Delta, Delta case. go ahead, sir. I, I want to, uh, for the benefit of the audience, ask a couple of factual
3: questions that you might be able to fill in um, for us all. First of all, um, did Mr. Porterfield throw the first punch? And second of all, um, did the bar provide security out in the parking lot? And if so, should that be held
6: against you? With respect to whether or not Mr. Porterfield threw the first punch, there's some evidence that he did, but I'm not sure that that evidence is undisputed for summary judgment purposes, nor for the court's consideration of the Goodwin analysis is it necessarily uh, material to the court's determination. With respect to whether or not my client had security in the case, yes, they did provide security. I mean, there's evidence in the record of that that there was security. Uh, that was both inside of Kavanaugh's and then posted at the door. And should that affect the Goodwin analysis? Uh, respectfully, no, Your Honor. I don't believe that it should. And why not? Well, primarily for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, the question is whether or not, from a Goodwin analysis perspective, uh, you're looking at the broad type of harm and the broad type of plaintiff without looking at the specific facts of the incident. Uh, and that's the stated test in the Goodwin incident. So whether or not my client had provided security at the time would be a question that is taking a look at the specific uh, facts of this incident as opposed to the broad type of plaintiff and broad type of harm. Additionally, with respect to whether or not they had provided security and that should be held against my client, I I would suggest to the court that the fact that my client had provided some some security in the case or was providing security inside of the premises, if that were to be held against them and, and allow them to or force them to have a duty on that basis, that would seem to be a discouragement to a, to a bar owner or a restaurant operator um, to say, well, I have a duty simply because I provided security. I mean, they're attempting to provide for the patrons in that regard, but then to impose a duty on them simply because they provided that um, would not be, I, from at least Kavanaugh's perspective, uh, good policy in that regard.
0: What if... What if, what if there would have been some notice. What if some words were spoken? Allegedly, Porterfield's friend made a rude comment to a woman, and then her friends jumped in, and there was a fight. Let's say instead of starting in the parking lot, it started in the bar. <clears throat> would, would you lose for summary judgment purposes?
6: I, I think, in that case, yes. The case would look more like the uh, the Court of Appeals opinions that have found uh, uh, to the contrary. If I'm looking at Hamilton or Certa or the Buddy and Pals versus Falaschetti cases, in each of those cases, the Court of Appeals found. Uh, a, a situation where you have um, some precursor uh, that occurs in the stake and shake cases uh, the Hamilton and the and the CERTA files. you have the the words that are exchanged are the precursor to the fight that occurs within the premises and Hamilton inserted occurs in the parking lot and then back within I, the it, premises so that, that
0: takes yes. us that kind of expands a little bit the Goodwin Rogers framework um, where you look at the broad type of plaintiff broad type of harm because even in Rogers in the, the, the legal duty, once that harm was imminent, right? Once that person, after the fight in the home was laying listless on the floor, that homeowner did have a legal duty at that point. So if you look at present knowledge of imminent harm, that would go into categorizing the broad um, broad class of plaintiffs and harm. Would you agree with that statement?
6: I would agree with that statement all
0: right so tell me why the fact that this bar had five police calls saying that for some reason and i think judge crone talked about herding the people out at three o'clock when the bar closed they they had some knowledge that there were fights for some reason this bar people like to fight in the parking lot because that's a lot of uh, police runs in a short period of time tell me why that wouldn't factor into that present <laughs> knowledge of imminent harm that we talked about in Rogers that Ham, and then in some of the stake and Shake cases and CERTA and other cases developed developing this common law through the Court of Appeals
6: well in this in this case uh, the, the prior incidents uh, are dissimilar from the Serta case and the Hamilton case and even even the Rogers case in those scenarios you have the the landowners who are have uh, a present sense of what is occurring on the property so in Hamilton uh, you can see the events occurring uh, within the restaurant. You can see the words being exchanged. In fact, I think in Hamilton, it was a 30-minute uh, period of the exchange that's noted in the, in the opinion. In CERTA, it's 30 to 45 minutes of watching this exchange occur, not only in the parking lot, getting reports from patrons inside, and then occurring within in there as well. And, and in the Rogers scenario, while, you, while the court determined that primarily there wasn't a duty, uh, because no one had any present sense, uh, that there was going to be the the fight between the co-host and the patron, or not the guest in, in the basement. Once they realized that, that, that there was someone who was injured, that's when the court found the duty. What about so, your two
0: security guys? There's two security guys standing outside the door. If they saw the fight go on and then Mr. Porterfield got pummeled, would, they, would there be some assumption of duty because they were there? I mean, do they have any duty if those security employees of Kavanaugh saw um, this plaintiff? Get injured
6: I don't believe there's any evidence in the case that the security guards witnessed uh, this fight occur and, and in this scenario the fight occurred so quickly I think the accounts from the witnesses and the record is, is a period of maybe just a couple of minutes at most and all of the witnesses including mr. Porterfield um, testified um, that in fact I think mr. Porterfield said he was surprised that the fight had happened it was unexpected um, mr. McPherson testified that the fight was unexpected uh, Andrea Acevedo, which is one of the ladies who had the exchange of words with, with Mr. Porterfield, said that the, that the event was unexpected. It was fast and it was abrupt. So the nature of of the event that occurs uh, also comes into play and distinguishes it from the Hamilton and the Serta and, and the fallachetti cases in which you've got other prior notice here. It's an immediate event that occurs in which all of the witnesses, to the record that I have seen in, inside of the court, indicates that it's unexpected and there's no prior knowledge this is going to happen.
5: I, I agree with that part of it, uh, but the, the thing that I'm struggling with uh, in, in trying to decide how to look at this particular issue is, is, is this. Broad class of plaintiff, I think you all agree on, is, is bar patron. And the broad class of harm, it seems to me, is fight at a bar. Uh, so uh, why is a why, why is that not enough to be foreseeable for duty purposes? Keeping in mind, we're just looking at duty. And and, and if, if, if we're just looking at those broad things, not pulling in any facts, it, it seems to me that, that there's a harm in, in finding that that's never enough because I think reasonable people would tend to think that you'd need to implement or take some measures to protect uh, your your invitees if you're a bar owner but but on the other hand if we're looking at this and we pull in any facts and and i don't know the totality of the circumstances or or not we've got this issue that seems to me at least somewhat akin to the stake and shake cases and the buddy and pal's case it's not immediate it's not there at the time but over the course of the 10-month period we've got evidence in the record that there's. There's five different police calls at the same time. Uh, help me out with that. Why why is it not one or the other? What and and just duty and and just at this point summary judgment. Got to take the facts most favorable to to the other side.
6: There are a couple of policy determinations that are delineated within the the Rogers case and and the, and the Goodwin cases. And and on one hand you have uh, a question as to um, whether or not. Um, the matter is foreseeable, and, and of course that's the question for the court. But the policy considerations that come into play are, are whether or not um, you make the property owner insure. Well,
5: let me let costs. me narrow that down just a little bit because I think that the thing that we were concerned about in, in, in the Yakel Sports Bar case, right? Unexpectedly shot. You, you don't expect somebody in a it's classified as a neighborhood bar, but then what's a neighborhood bar? It does that. Uh, it, is, is that totality of circumstances or not? But we, somebody shot, that's a harm that you, you don't want to take steps to, to, to bring somebody in. But we're talking about a fight, that, and that seems to me to be different. I mean, I understand the policy considerations, but why is this not different in that broad class of harm with this broad type of plaintiff?
6: I, the distinction, Your Honor, I think comes from both the—from the—, um, from the language in decision making and decision-making in Goodwin and Rogers and here in both of those cases uh, The the court specifically focused on as I look at the opinions the suddenness of the events uh, That was noted specifically in the Goodwin opinion um, that we don't ex- I believe the court's language We don't expect a one patron to suddenly shoot another patron and, and again There was an unexpected nature uh, of the event in the in the Rogers and Martin cases and, and that was the distinction that uh, the Hamilton uh, Court drew upon when it was dising- distinguishing those two cases from the Hamilton scenario. What was the suddenness of it, and and that's ultimately what makes the matter unforeseeable from a duty perspective. Is if there's no prior notice that something's going to happen, and and in, in, in this in this event there wasn't any prior notice. That's where uh, where the the no duty and from a foreseeability element comes in, because if the if they and, and this is been a principle of premises liability law um, in Indiana um, it, it, as far as my research has been able to identify for, for a long time that notice is a key element and it figures in here to this foreseeability question notice mm-hmm. of
2: that particular incident escalating or notice of previous incidents because uh, I agree uh, we're not to apply a totality of the circumstances test so that that the analysis as to whether it's a duty as a matter of law should not include prior runs from police correct yes your honor um, was this parking lot
6: owned by the bar? I don't think there's any evidence in the record that it uh, that it wasn't at least maintained by the bar. I do know that the fight appears to have spilled over from the Cavanaugh's parking lot and ended in the library.
2: It's not lot. it's not your position that the duty of the bar to its patrons ends at the threshold. You seem to recognize that there is a, a duty uh, to protect those patrons. Um, if I might suggest, as they leave? Yes, Your Honor. Um, So, is it your position that had this fight going on for uh, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, at some point in time it would have been unreasonable had not the bar done something to break
6: that up? It depends on the notice that the bar receives, Your Honor. Um, I think the longer it goes on, the the louder it is than yes, but I think the the brief duration of, of the fight in this case uh, the fact that there was nothing to indicate inside the bar that there was any fight um, that was oncoming, and, and again, Mr. Porterfield agreed with that. So, so the brief,
2: the brief duration of a sexual assault in the in the, in the parking lot, uh, you have the same position. It just kind of depends on how long that sexual assault transpires before the bar has ANY obligation.
6: Well again, I think that depends on the notice that's received. And I mean, there is it. there is a, a, the court of appeals has addressed a sexual assault case in the Cosgrave. Uh, what if
5: it's happened five times in the 10 months preceding the incident?
6: I think there has to be some pardon me, Your Honor. I believe my finish. time. Is, would you like for me to finish the Please. answer? Yes. Um, there. From an evidentiary perspective and the way that the question is framed which I think is is what the court is asking as well is how do we frame this question in terms of what what is knowledge and where do you fit the knowledge in um, if there is some relationship between the between these prior incidents maybe some similarity of, of, of people involved or or you know there maybe there's some reputation or knowledge on behalf of, of the community that well this always happens in Kavanaugh's, and it's it's you know, Thursday night and now Thursday night at 3 a.m. there's going to be a fight in the Kavanaugh's parking lot and everyone knows that or it's the same people who are, who are engaging in these fights. If there's some continuity of the events, then I think that could be stated in the, in the, in the broad description of the parties, but here uh, there's not any real foundation uh, of a relationship between what is, appears to be several isolated events. And so um, coming out and, and having Kavanaugh's on, on an evening in which uh, they have no notice that this is going to take place, and that appears to be, uh, at least on this evening, uh, that appears to be undisputed, would require Kavanaugh to ultimately be responsible for something that, that they didn't know was going to happen, nor did anyone else involved in that fight know it was going to happen.
0: All right. Thank you, Mr. Cody. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. And Mr. Sarkeesian. <coughs>
7: Good morning, may I please the court. My name is Leon Sarkisian. I represent the appellee in this case, Eric Porterfield. First of all, I'd like to thank Park Heritage for their hospitality. They were very kind and, and made it very easy for us to get in and out of here and prepare for our argument. As a matter of delegation of time, I respectfully request to the court that uh, I be allowed 10 minutes and that at the 10 minute mark, I yield to amicus counsel, Mr. Hawkins.
0: That's fine. I'll, I'll rely on you to set this parameters. I will those, do that.
7: Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. Your Honor, on behalf of Eric Waterfield, we request that the petition for transfer filed by Kavanaugh's be denied because we believe our Court of Appeals accurately and correctly applied the legal ana- analyses provided by this Court for determining foreseeability in the context of duty.
2: Could you uh, comment, counsel, on uh, opposing counsel's points? My understanding is that he all but concedes or concedes that, that the bar had a duty um, to the patrons, but that duty could not be triggered or was not triggered triggered until the bar had some notice of, of the event, in this particular case, the fight. Um, and that they were not an absolute insurer of safe passage, so to speak. Do do you agree with that? And if you agree with that, uh, how how much notice is the bar entitled to?
7: We agree that, uh, as this court indicated in Goodwin, that a landowner is not an insurer of the safety or security of its invitees. However, and this is important, this is important in, in this consideration, Nothing in Goodwin or Rogers should be interpreted as this court holding that a business owner or bar owner should disregard or forget facts within their knowledge. In this particular case, they had knowledge, specific knowledge of five previous calls.
0: Okay, but but I, I'm going to ask you about that because you know, in Goodwin, Goodwin specifically prohibited said, we, we will not consider the prior reports with regard to foreseeability. That that, that analysis best for proximate cause, not for legal duty.
2: Well, you know. So n- tell, n- us why,
0: tell us why we should expand the holding. because It says that pretty directly in Goodwin, that uh, the court will not consider the prior instances. So tell us why we should expand that holding. Tell us the policy reasons for broadening what we said, pretty specifically in Goodwin, to uh, bring it to this case.
7: Your Honor, in in preparation for this oral argument and uh, to try and understand the context in which Goodwin was decided, I I went back and I took a look at the oral argument in, in Goodwin. Right at the end of the oral argument, Justice David asked this question, and this is virtually verbatim. Would you concede that if in response to your summary judgment, the evidence in this case was that this bar had numerous incidents of fights and situations previously where the police were called because someone drew a gun on a patron, or there were published crime statistics in a local newspaper, or that this was a dangerous neighborhood, and, or that this was a higher crime rate, that these facts, if known, would put you in a much more difficult position on summary judgment? And to his credit, Yekel's counsel answered, other incidents would make a difference.
0: But you understand that the law changed after that case. The law that was in effect at the time that case was argued was not the new path that the court created post Yackel's um, Goodwin and Rogers versus Martin. I mean, very specifically say, today we are charting a new path. There's a lot of confusion on this law with regard to what's in legal duty. So while that answer might may have been correct, under those, the trio of cases that sort of dominated that—the Delta, Tau, Delta—and the other cases—that um, wasn't the law. Afterwards, the common law progressed here with regard to the holding in Goodwin and Rogers, and it, it set up a new framework.
7: But this court in Rogers also indicated that the that the analysis comports with the idea that the courts will find a duty where, in general, reasonable persons would recognize it and agree that it exists, and and as far as knowledge is concerned, while Goodwin vehicles may be the most factually similar, this court's holding in Rogers probably is the most instructive, and here's why. There were two holdings in that case. Holding number one was that a, a, uh, a host of a party should not be required to protect its, its guests against another guest attacking them, because that's not something that is normally considered to happen at a party. Holding one. Holding two, once the homeowner had actual knowledge that there was a problem, that there could have been an issue.
4: But but they're talking about an actual problem in that case, as to that particular plaintiff. There's no actual knowledge in this case as to your client. There may have been actual knowledge about five prior incidents, but that had nothing to do with your client on that evening.
7: And I say this as respectfully as I can possibly say. If this this court, instead of being the highest court in the state of Indiana, was instead an investment group in hospitality enterprises, and I was managing one of its bars, and it had knowledge of five previous incidents in a parking lot at closing time, on a weekend, or the police had to be called, I would suspect that reasonable minds would feel, hey, we have a problem here. Leon, you're our manager, you need to address this issue. There's a problem.
3: Well, isn't that why they had two security guards in the parking lot?
7: They had two security guards, I believe, Your Honor, at the, at the door. Their primary concern, I think, in the case was to be sure that no alcohol was taken outside. I don't believe there was anybody very far out in the parking lot. I don't believe the record shows that.
2: So without the prior incidents, let's take those off the equation. Uh, Your position is the bar closes at 3 a.m. The bar is herding the patrons out into the parking lot. Uh, Your position is the bar security people are there primarily to supervise an orderly exit from the bar uh, and perhaps people leave the bar and don't remain in the bar and hopefully they don't take any alcohol out. Um, and under those circumstances, it's your position, if I'm correct, that as a matter of law there should be a, a duty of the bar to exercise a reasonable care uh, uh, for the orderly exit of those, of those patrons. Is that correct?
7: Yes. In addition, this court acknowledged, even though it, it found against the, the injured party in Goodwin, this court acknowledged that bars are oftentimes scenes of raucous or rowdy behavior.
2: Opposing counsel seems to concede again that we accept that, uh, but we should have some sort of, of notice. And, and to me, to regardless of whether or previous incidents, um, they seem to suggest that we at least have to have an opportunity to intervene. Um, And you seem to be suggesting, help me out, that no, it's it's if the punch is thrown and the plaintiff here was innocent or the plaintiff here was a, a female and was assaulted in the parking lot, that the duty to protect, the duty to respond by the bar is once something happens, um, are, are you suggesting that it's something earlier than before it happens? Help, help me understand well, where the two of you really have the fine line, which really, to me, is what this case turns on.
7: Well, I, I'm not uh, conceding that the the incident occurred as quickly and as without notice as. A counsel, my friend on the other side suggests um, although we're not supposed to look as I understand good when we're not supposed to look at the facts of the particular incident, my feeling is and and our feeling is that that not only is if a parking lot or a bar is a a site where there can be rowdy behavior, not only do we have a duty to intervene, but a duty to prevent, a duty of deterrence. Perhaps somebody out in the parking lot. in Buddy and Pals, they had a police officer um, patrolling the parking lot. My suggestion would be that it's not just to intervene, but to deter and to protect.
6: Um,
4: Mr. Sarkeesian, do you acknowledge, do you concede that if the five prior incidents either had not occurred or we ignore them for purposes of this case that your client loses? No. That's unforeseeable as a matter of law? No. How, how do you win?
7: Because of what we've said about bars. Bars are locations where fights can happen in parking lots. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, people have been drinking. So
4: why doesn't that transform the, the, the proprietor in that case or any case into an insurer who is essentially assuming a responsibility for anybody who comes on the premises no matter what?
7: When you have something sudden like somebody pulling a gun out, like you're. Like your honor, and like this court said in Goodwin, fights are, are a different category, different quality.
4: But, but why, why, why does it matter whether the fight is a gunfight, a knife fight, or a fist fight? Why is that legally relevant?
7: Because it's, it's the broad type of, of plaintiff and the broad type of harm is, is really important. The broad type of harm, somebody pulling a gun and shooting, makes it uh, well, very, pulls very. pulls out a
4: knife and stabs you. Why is that any less sudden or, or foreseeable?
7: I agree with that. We're talking about a fight. We're talking about fisticuffs. We're talking about people fighting outside of a bar. We've all heard of that.
2: Does it make any difference in in and I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. Your Honor,
7: I I don't mean, I'm past my 10 minutes, and if you would (laughs) like. It
2: probably wasn't a very good question. (coughs) I don't
7: mean it. I certainly would like to give amicus counsel an opportunity.
0: Thank you, sir. Mr. Hawkins. And just for the students, if you can briefly describe what your role is with regard to amicus.
1: Yes, Your Honor. Uh, amicus is a friend of the court, and I am a member of the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association and the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association on behalf of its members. Uh, one knows that this case is capable of producing precedent in future cases. Uh, therefore, my role here today is to make sure that the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association, or ITLA as it's called, uh, interests are, are heard for this matter For purposes of precedent
4: do i understand correctly that you're not taking a position on how we ought to decide this case
1: that is correct your honor um i i think that is correct I, i think certainly there are some rules that i think will influence the outcome of this case and would probably push it of course more towards the plaintiff's side but the ultimate determination of this case particularly when it gets down if if this court should not grant transfer and it should go back to the trial court ITLA has absolutely no position on that. Even if this court determines that there is a duty, the trial court still has to determine whether there's breach, damages, causation, et cetera, and ITLA has absolutely no position whatsoever with respect to that.
5: That's an important distinction that might be lost on our audience today. What we're really deciding here today is not who wins or loses. uh, It's something else entirely, isn't it?
1: That's correct, Your Honor. Uh,
5: Can you just speak briefly about that?
1: Yes, uh, basically what we're here today is to determine whether there's a basic general duty for proprietors to provide certain protections for their patrons. Um, if the answer to that question is yes, then the court, or the trial court, I should say, goes on to answer other questions, particularly whether Kavanaugh's breached that duty by taking reasonable actions uh, to, to fulfill its duty, uh, which is a question of f- fact for the jury to determine largely, assuming there's evidence in the record to go to a jury on that issue and to determine damages, whether as a result of a breach of that duty uh, the plaintiff in this case was in fact damaged.
0: Do you agree with the, um, Mr. Porterfield's attorney's statement that any time somebody would be injured in a fight in a bar, at a bar, um, inside outside, with no, that the bar owner could ha- would have a legal duty to protect?
1: That is my reading of the Court of Appeals' opinion, Your Honor. And I think and it, that sounds—I understand the Court might say that sounds extreme. If I could speak to that, I don't think it's really as extreme. So that's a yes? You that are That is a agreement yes, I'm sorry. with that statement? Okay. I, I do agree, Your Honor, and I think that's that's the Court of Appeals' decision. And, and remember, again, what we're distinguishing here is duty versus potentially breach of duty. What we're saying is, yes, there is a duty for the bar to protect its customers. But you could say, okay, in any circumstance, that sounds so so extreme. But again, that goes to breach. If you're a mom-pop bar that closes at eight o'clock, the reasonableness in fulfilling that duty, which is a, usually a jury question, is going to be much lighter than a bar that closes at three in the morning where you have large crowds and so in this
0: So in, under your reading or your interpretation, the, the cases that have sort of developed this through the court of appeals, that they knew that there was a fight, that that's not necessary. Anytime you're in a restaurant, a bar, any type of business, there's a fight that the, there's a there's legal responsibility
1: for the. There is a legal responsibility, and, and again, I, I understand that might sound a bit extreme, we, but.
0: But it, we, we worked against that, you know, in Goodwin and Rogers, we sort of got away from this general blanket insurer responsibility, and we set up a framework. Court of Appeals has sort of taken that framework, and several Court of Appeals opinion classified the broad type of plaintiff in terms of what was occurring at the time of the harm. What is your theory? What is your what is your opinion? with regard to that? Because you seem to be pulling back before. I believe your position is, and the position is, now we want you to tighten up this even more of what was done in in Rogers. When the trend has been sort of the federal courts looked at this case, um, Court of Appeals looked at this case and sort of followed it with this, what was occurring at the time.
1: If I understand, and please tell me if I'm not answering your question, Your Honor, but I, I think the distinction here is the difference between a bar fight and a bar shooting. A bar shooting is a remarkable event. It's a newsworthy event. A bar fight is not a remarkable event. It's not a newsworthy event. And when people drink in close proximity to one another till 3 in the morning, no one should be surprised. And ultimately, applying Goodwin, the question that Goodwin asks is foreseeability. Uh, a bar fight, because it's not a remarkable event, is foreseeable. Uh, I, re- I understand, uh, I mean, there's this pendulum you're talking about but i think at the end of the day the, the simple question before the court is is it for generally foreseeable and a fight in a bar is not a remarkable event it never makes the news unless there's some fantastic injury whereas a shooting in goodwin and i think that was the analysis in goodwin While it's sad that gun violence is more prevalent in America, it's still, no one would foresee that occurring. And I I think that's certainly the distinction that the Court of Appeals is making, and it's certainly the distinction that ITLA backs in this case. So So what you're saying in bar fight cases is, don't short circuit these cases right now.
3: Let a jury decide whether or not the bar took adequate precautions. Right,
1: because there is a duty. But again, you could say, okay, that could lead to some extreme results. It would then encourage the court again to trust the juries, because breach is still and causation are still very formidable elements that have to be satisfied. Again, if you're if you're this bar who's never had a fight in their history, that goes to breach in breach of the duty, and the defendant could say, wait a minute, I told my bartender you're not to overserve people. My bartender didn't overserve these individuals. Um, lower standards and stuff that the defendant can do to exercise that duty so if your pos- your position is is probably if
2: this case were to return to the trial court for um, a jury trial or disposition it's likely that the evidence of the prior incidences uh, would be admissible
1: yes your honor for, for, for I'm sorry go ahead
2: for determination of breach and and if I understand the it position is is All we are required to look at and ask to look at is this foreseeability issue, not whether or not there was a breach, correct? Correct. And and hypothetically, does this help your position? Uh, Hypothetically, if you had three bar fights, um, one occurring starting in the restaurant or in the bar, and the bar is told, go outside, take it outside. I don't think uh, opposing counsel would, would... argue that that's not foreseeable, that a fight would occur, continue outside, and the bar would have some responsibility. On the flip side, I think you would agree, in a hypothetical, if the bar fight uh, outside the bar is caused by somebody driving by, seeing someone they recognize, getting out of car, running over there, and pummeling this patron who just left the bar, uh, that would be, uh, not, for, would not be foreseeable, it's not a summary judgment for the bar. And what we have here, I think your position is really that middle ground, where where uh, there's a general duty, it may or may not have been breached here. That's for the trial of fact to determine. Is that a fair assessment?
1: I believe it is, Your Honor. Are you
2: concerned that the Court of Appeals case is causing us great consternation, and 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 uh, we may we may not uh,
1: agree on how that should be? I'm very concerned, uh, particularly because Goodwin was such a watershed event in Indiana jurisprudence. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, watershed, that's what lawyers do, that's part of what, how, how things are done. Um, but there, there are many, as I mentioned in my brief, very venerable common law duties that Goodwin is very unsure whether Goodwin affects or doesn't affect. And that, that's really, Goodwin's, I think, I mean, it was most important. Uh, Role here today is to try to protect some of those common law duties and uh, very briefly since I only have 20 seconds um, I'd like to speak to one of them this court talks about the five previous incidents I think irrespective of how this court comes out with respect to duty on a negligence ground Five previous police runs speaks to reckless or wanton conduct Goodwin is a negligence case Not a reckless case, and I think that at least for purposes of summary judgment can be satisfied for reckless or wanton conduct. I see that my time is up, Your Honors. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mr. Hopkins. Mr. Cody, rebuttal. Thank
6: you. Your Honors, the first issue I I want to uh, address on rebuttal uh, goes again to the question of the acceptance of this case for transfer. One of the cases, uh, the Court of Appeals cases, that has uh, taken a look at the applicability of prior instances following Goodwin and following Rogers was the Cosgrave versus the French Lit case. Uh, that's a case in which there was a sexual assault uh, that took place inside of the French Lit casino, and there were uh, histories and run reports of a prior sexual assault that had taken place there, as well as some other events that. Uh, the council asked the Court of Appeals to take a look at when determining whether or not the casino uh, an hotel had a duty to prevent this assault from taking place. In that case, the Court of Appeals specifically cited to Goodwin uh, and rejected that invitation.
5: What are said, we to do with the distinction, though, in the numbers? But there's one prior sexual assault at French Lick Resort that uh, was concerning the Court of Appeals, and we've got five priors here. Is, is there any time at which... A line needs to be drawn. Is it? Is it? Is it ten? Is it fifteen? What's, what? What are we to do with, with, with the fact that, those numbers are considered by the court of appeals,
6: in this particular case? Well,
5: have- in as much as we're asked to look at the French Lick case for guidance, there's, there's what, what appears to me to be an important factual distinction in that there was one prior incident that French Lick uh, w- w- would have known about and and, and would have been guided in making their determination as to what steps to take to protect their guests. And here, you know, we've got these five. Uh, It it seems to me that there must be a point, sort of amicus's point, that when does it become reckless and and wanton?
6: If there were some degree of relationship that was drawn out between them, or some foundation that existed between the prior incidences and this one... um,
5: Well, they did. They said. Fights in the parking lot at closing time on the weekend. That, that, that's. Those are the facts that they drew and, and helped me distinguish them.
6: Well, again, and there was no notice in this particular situation, and, I, and that again, if taking a look back at, at Rogers and Martin uh, and then the Goodwin file, those are the distinguishing elements. The, the, the notice, the present notice, that made a difference there in terms of what the. Know, what my client knew versus, say, what, was, what had taken place in those incidents. So that's and what it
3: really turns on in, in your view. Justice David asked you when you were last at the podium whether you had a duty to protect customers in
6: your parking lot, and you said you did. And my question then is from what? Well, and, and with respect to that question, my answer was again, if you have notice of the events. Right? I'm not, there, there was a distinction in the Court of Appeals. So your duty opinion.
3: doesn't begin as a matter of law until you have notice yes, your of Honor. the fight. Of
6: that Mr. particular well yeah, and, and that's the way the question has been framed um, at least the answer to the questions have been framed so in, so in the bar yes, yes.
2: closes at 3 as bouncers or people to herd the, the group out in the parking lot and at the threshold the obligation is fulfilled unless something subsequent happens that's brought to the attention of the bar.
6: yes your honor
4: Mr. Sarkeesian suggested that the events were not as sudden as you've described them. Um, h- how sudden does it have to be? I mean, help, help us identify what is sudden and what's sufficiently protracted that uh, there, there is no uh, line we can draw as a matter of law.
6: In, in this case, Your Honor, I can only speak to what the witnesses testified to uh, with respect to this case and they, they all describe them as sudden, unexpected and those are not my words or descriptions that's the plaintiff's own words and, and the other people who were involved in this case. In terms of how much notice uh, is required, um, if you take a look at the Hamilton and the CERDA cases, you have 20 and 30 minutes of ongoing fights. In the, in the Buddy and Pal's case, you have a, an event where you know that someone's already tackled uh, another patron inside the bar. They were thrown outside of the bar at that point, so you know have, you have someone who's in a fighting mood. I think those. I notice that some kind of fight is going m- to m- ensue. Let me ask
4: you briefly about those three court of appeals cases. The two cases involving stake and shake, and then the buddy and pals case. Do you acknowledge? Do you concede that those were correctly decided, or is your invocation of those cases simply to tell us um, that your case is not those cases?
6: It, that is correct. It's the latter, Your Honor. I, I, I don't. I'm, I draw those cases out for the of purposes, <clears throat> purposes of really distinguishing our file from those cases, it isn't It isn't. It unlike those cases because in this case we really have no notice and it shows a distinction between my case, pardon me, our case and uh, the cases that were decided in Goodwin and their holdings as well as Rogers and Martin. Uh, I see my time has expired, Your Honors. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Mr. Kodig. Counsel, I wanna just commend you on the quality of uh, excellent briefing, excellent argument today. Students you got to see just, just really very, very high quality work. Um, at this time, um, we are going to allow the students or any members of the audience ask us any questions. Um, we will have to take questions for the next half hour or so. And welcome, the attorneys can turn around and look at um, while they ask the questions. And we've got some staff that are going to collect. We, um, and I think they told you in the beginning, you cannot ask-